But we're going to look at uh, some truths from Jacob from Genesis 32. You could go ahead and be turning in your Bibles there. We'll have a little bit more of an introduction to kind of bring it uh, into context and focus uh, this morning of where we want to land. Uh, some are not as familiar with Old Testament events and people, so if you would just uh, help me uh, by just listening to a little bit of introduction about Jacob and kind of a really, really brief uh, timeline of some events that will lead up to where we want to look at in chapter 32 of Genesis. Now, Jacob, as most of you, I assume, know, uh, is the grandson of Abraham. Uh, his father was named Isaac. Uh, and he is the third of what is oftentimes referred to as the patriarchs. Now, sometimes that's referred to a little broader, but normally the patriarchs is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, the patriarchs, the fathers of Israel, the fathers of the faith, the ancestors of Israel, certainly not limited to that, but oftentimes you see those uh, three, three names together signifying God's covenant that he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and obviously passed down. But a quick review of his life. You kind of see the setup of where this is going. And uh, if you would just kind of go back and look with me a little bit uh, in Genesis 25, I want to read uh, about his uh, birth. Uh, and in Genesis 25, verse 22, uh, he was a twin. His brother was named Esau. And you see something interesting in this account that kind of gives you a little indication uh, uh, for the rest of his life of how Jacob will uh, follow a pattern. The Bible says in verse 22 that the children struggled together within her. Now, her is Rebekah, his mother, Esau and Jacob. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Well, that's a good thing for a mother to say when your twins are fighting each other in your womb, right? Right? I mean, they're, they're, she said, why is this happening to me? So she, Rebecca, went to inquire of the Lord, verse 23, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Uh, and so the older, as if you read more, is Esau was born before Jacob. But the Lord says that the older will serve the younger, which is not really the way things work out. The firstborn is the inheritor of the father's blessings and his wealth and et cetera, et cetera. But in this case, Jacob will be lead, but even though Esau was the older of the two twins. Verse 26 will drop down to. Now, this is interesting. It says, Afterward, his brother came out, that's Esau, with his hand, or that's Jacob, I'm sorry. Uh, afterward, his brother came out with his hand, Jacob, holding Esau's heel. A little aggressive little guy, isn't he? So his name was called Jacob, Isaac, it says, was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, Jacob's action is oftentimes a, uh, interpreted to kind of, again, be that metaphor of Jacob's life. His name means 
supplanter, which one, a supplanter is one who takes something or overtakes something in an aggressive manner, okay? And if you know anything about Jacob's life, you see that as a pattern in his life, a picture of someone like uh, grasping after Esau's foot there, even coming out and being born, we see Jacob reaching and trying to hold on like, hey, you're not coming out first. I'm coming out ahead of you. That was kind of the way he lived his life. Now, we're going to kind of do a little speed, uh, speed watching here. You know, when you're sometimes you ever be watching a show and you just want to skip somewhere, isn't it nice? You just hit that button and just, and you know, you tap it three times and you just, and then you zoom. We're going we're gonna to do a little fast forwarding here about Jacob's life and his growing up. So as he grew up, the struggle between Esau and Jacob continued and the Bible tells us, and again, we're not going to look at all these scriptures. I'm just kind of setting things up because it's important to where we want to go this morning. The Bible tells us in Genesis 25 that Esau was a man of the field. He was kind of a man's man, a rugged man, all right? He hunted, he fished, he did all those rugged, uh, manly, macho things, right? Uh, and Jacob, it says, was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Jacob, if we could kind of read or say maybe a little bit between there, he was more of a thoughtful, you know, he laid back kind of person. Esau was that aggressive hunter and uh, man's man. And the Bible says explicitly, it's interesting how honest the Bible always is, that, is that Rebekah, the mother, favored Jacob. Now, you know, that's a recipe for disaster. We see that in uh, Joseph's life, right, with, of course, his father Jacob, so the little family line there. And so the story of Jacob really kind of culminates into an event that really kind of sets up the turmoil between Jacob and Esau, and it culminates near, uh, right about before Isaac was going to die. And Isaac, as he's laying there on his deathbed, has a request that he asked his son Esau, he wanted some of that good homemade stew from some of Esau's wild game that he had killed. He wanted Esau to uh, make that homemade stew one more time before Isaac died. Now, Rebecca, now remember, and, and, and by the way, Isaac told Esau, said, after I eat, I will confer on you my patriarchal blessing, the birthright. I will bless you as the heir of this family. Now, Rebecca, she overheard this. Now, remember, the Bible has already told us that she favored Jacob. You know what she did, which, again, Bible's very clear. She went and went to Jacob and said, hurry, let's make this stew together. And what we are essentially going to do was the plan is we were going to trick Isaac, because the Bible says that his sight was dim, meaning near blindness, and we are going to trick Isaac, daddy, into giving you the blessing of the firstborn. Now, they did this by not only just cooking the stew, but they also put some kind of hairy garments on him. Obviously, Esau was in need of a razor, you know, and some, you know, whatever you, you happens there. But anyway, and he was a very hairy man, so he had to kind of mimic the way Esau was physically because Isaac couldn't see, 
But, you know, the Bible says that when he brought the stew, now remember Esau's out hunting. All this is happening in between. And he brought out that uh, stew, and Jacob, imitating his brother Esau, comes in, and he's got some hairy uh, uh, skins, you know, some animals on him to make it kind of appear that he's Esau, and he brings that stew. And Isaac is totally buying into all this, and he questions, says, well, you don't, you know, you don't quite sound like Esau, but you certainly kind of feel like Esau, whatever. And Isaac confers that patriarchal birthright blessing, or that blessing, I should say, upon uh, Jacob. Now, Esau, when he came back and he had heard what had happened, this was something that was irreversible. Obviously, he was quite upset and vowed that he would kill Jacob, that when Isaac, when daddy died, he was going to kill Jacob. Well, mama told, uh, that being Rebecca, told Jacob to get out of town, go to Uncle Laban, live for a while, he'll protect you, work for Laban, which was Rebecca's brother, and he was a piece of work in himself, all right, and live with him until this thing dies over. And that's what Jacob did. And so this, this competition and this, uh, this uh, deception that Jacob and Rebekah brought on uh, was very distressful, but it caused Esau to have this, this intense uh, uh, passion that he is going to uh, met out retribution against Jacob. Now, fast forward, and again, this is not on the screen. I'm just kind of running through this because it builds up to where we want to look this morning. That as Jacob was fleeing to Haran, that on the way, Jacob stopped to rest. And this is in Genesis 28. If you have your Bibles, this is kind of good to kind of familiarize yourself with it, okay? To know where these things are, all right? And that way you'll be a better Bible student. So in Genesis 28, he stops to rest uh, for the night, and in this dream, he dreams and has a vision of a ladder coming down from heaven. So the scripture there uh, on the screen, and it came that to a certain place, and he stayed there that night, Jacob, because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head. Must have, got out of, must have got that stone pillow out of one of the hotels I recently stayed at. But taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, in this dream there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God we're ascending and descending on it. Verse 13, and behold, the Lord, anytime you see all the letters capitalized like that, that is a way of signifying in the English the Hebrew name of God for Yahweh. Yahweh stood above it and said, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham and your father and your and your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Now, what's happening here in Jacob's life? Remember, he's fleeing. He's on his way to kind of hide out with Uncle Laban. But in this dream, and this is really the first, we're going to look at a second significant spiritual encounter. But this is the first one at a place called Bethel or Bethel. And Jacob has this vision. And what God does in this vision was give the assurance to Jacob of that of God's covenantal 
blessings that were given to Abraham, were given to Isaac, that he is an inheritor of those covenantal promises. So this is, Bethel is a place of assurance. That it's a place of, of, of that initiation that Jacob will be blessed because of the covenantal promises that God gave to Abraham and Isaac and, of course, now upon Jacob and his offspring. Verse 16, I believe, should be on the screen. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said this. this remember, this is at Bethel. He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Verse 19. Not sure if I have verse 19. Okay, I don't. That's okay. Uh, or that is, verse 19 is the place he called Bethel. All right? So that was the first of what I would say were two significant spiritual encounters that Jacob had with the Lord. This morning, we are going to look at the second spiritual encounter that Jacob had with the Lord. And the reason I took the time to build up and go through about the conflict with Esau and all that is because when we come to Genesis 32, it is in that context of Esau and Jacob and that, that, that situation between those two brothers that gives us the context of where we come to chapter 32. Now, remember, in Jacob's life, this is early in Jacob's life that Bethel took place, early in his life. Later on, we'll see the second one in just a minute. And really, you could almost compare or say that that is a metaphor to the Christian, that there is that time in all of our lives that we have that affirmation and confirmation of our relationship with the Lord. We might say that's a place where we are born again, as far as just a metaphor for the Christian life and what took place with Jacob here. It's a place in which uh, God affirmed that I am the Lord. I am your Lord. You are my child. And again, that is, again, metaphorical to the way that a Christian, we become born again. We have that assurance that God gives us through the gospel and through Christ. And I trust that you have had your Bethel experience, if you will. And while the Bethel experience is essential, that experience is essential to every believer. We have that initial encounter and experience with the Lord. There's also a second encounter, and perhaps many more, but it's, it's symbolized by the second event in Jacob's life that we find in chapter 32. And that experience is at a place... Not Bethel, but Penuel. Penuel. And its experience, as we'll see, Penuel, unlike the difference with Bethel as an initiation, reaffirmation, assurance, Penuel is a place of refinement. Penuel is a place of transformation. Penuel is the second encounter with the Lord in Jacob's life. It's a place of transformation, similar and metaphorical to the change and transformation that God does in the sanctifying work of the gospel and the spirit that he does in the believer's life. Now remember, we've said this and quoted these verses many times. Remember how the Old Testament is portrayed in the New in Romans chapter 15 verse 4 that reminds us that what, for whatever was written in former days 
was written for our instruction. The Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures, we call them. It says they are written for our instruction. We can learn. I, I'll say, I've said this before. I would much rather learn from your mistakes than make my own. How about you? Would you rather learn from my mistakes than make your own? Yeah. So we can learn from those Old Testament saints. We can learn and also not just learn what not to do, but we learn what to do. We learn how God works in their lives. And the Bible says that the God, that our God is the same yesterday, today, and what? And forever, all right? So we're not reading some history book of days gone by. It says that they were written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we, here on the other side of the New Covenant, might have hope. And so the very thing that happened to Jacob needs to happen in the life of every believer in this room today. So the title of my message this morning is Renewal at Penuel. Isn't that cute? That rhymes, doesn't it? Renewal at Penuel. And this is an event very significant in Jacob's life. And you may not be familiar with it, but this morning I hope that as we walk through this a little bit that you'll gain some encouragement, understand the renewal that took place in Jacob's life and the transformation that took place in Jacob's life at a very significant point. Remember the context. This is why we belabored our introduction a little more than normal. Remember, Jacob conned his brother Esau out of the birthright that he was entitled to of the firstborn, the inheritance, the wealth. And Esau had been upset for many years. He never forgot that of Jacob's conniving, of his being, what is his name? Jacob means supplanter. We could also use some synonyms like trickster, manipulator, right? That's his identity, coming out of the, his mama's belly, and he's grabbing on to his brother's leg like, no, me first, not you. That was how he lived his life. And so here we come to chapter 32, Again, just by way of building up to the main portion of that where we'll look at this morning, that'll be around verse 22 through 32, we see that he has just come out of a crisis of living with Laban, and that is a story in and of itself. You know, sometimes what goes around comes around, and that Laban had his own issues, as I said, and that's worth reading. But here we find at the beginning of chapter 32, Again, not on the screen, but I hope you have your Bibles open uh, because this is narrative and it's good to follow, that the angels, God brought angels to, again to bring a, a, a reassurance in Jacob's life of God's favor and covenantal blessings. Now, don't, don't mistake that God's blessing of Jacob is the result of Jacob. It's the result of God. God may covenant with himself, and God cannot lie. So God is reminding and reestablishes his faithfulness, not because Jacob has lived such a perfect sanitary life, but because God is faithful to his word. And so you go look down at verses 3 through 8. And Jacob knows that he's got to get this situation rectified with Esau because he's lived his life in hearing the rumblings that Esau has not forgotten what Jacob did, this trickery, this, this stealing of his inheritance. And so 
Jacob sent some messengers in verse uh, uh, verse uh, five, he, uh, three through eight. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it. That he sent some messengers that he had heard Esau was out there, and he wanted to get this thing resolved so he could live his life without fear. And so Jacob sent some messengers out to Esau to kind of be peacemakers, emissaries, ambassadors, if you will, to try to bring uh, a uh, resolve to this. And it's interesting, in verse 6, when the messengers came back, they had some disturbing news for Jacob. When they came back, they said, look, don't worry about us going to Esau, because Esau's coming to you. And guess what? He's got 400 men he's bringing with him. Now, Jacob is like most of us. We would panic. All right? This is his worst nightmare of what is getting ready to take place. And he does what I think uh, uh, we often do uh, in times of panic and distress in verse 11. Look at verse 11, chapter 32. He pleads to the Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. Now, that's that's the situation that builds up to where we want to land and look at verse 24 forward and talk about what is this renewal at Penuel. Now, we're just going to see what takes place in two verses that on the night before this big confrontation between Jacob and Esau, Jacob uh, tries to get some sleep uh, as he prepares mentally and Uh, wondering what is going to happen. Is this the last night on earth? And the Bible says in verse 24, Genesis 32, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, this man touched Jacob's hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he, the man, wrestled with him. Now imagine you're having a good sleep, you know those good sleeps, you know those tranquil sleeps, right? And all of a sudden, you're jumped by somebody that wants to wrestle with you. And this is what's going on here. This mysterious stranger dislocated his hip. Now think about it, if Jacob was unprepared for Esau and his 400 men before now, how much more is he messed up with a busted hip? He's in big trouble. He was alone, he was afraid, and he was completely broken. And here's the secret. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. Because now, in this brokenness, and this is what I want you to catch on to, in this brokenness, in this lack of any self-ability at a great crisis that he couldn't control, he couldn't manipulate, he couldn't scheme, God busted him down 
that where his only hope was up, was for God. Now, some of you, you may be there today. And if you're not there today, life has a way of developing a pattern. You might be there next week or next month. As I've said many times, if we use the valley, the Bible talks about the valley as kind of a place that's trials and desolate. You're either in the valley, you're either coming out of the valley, or what? You're getting ready to go into the valley. And yet all, all along the way, Yahweh is faithful. So what is this renewal at Penuel. Location is identified later in verse 31. Penuel. This is different than Bethel. This is the renewal at Penuel of Jacob's life. And I want us to make three observations from this passage in Genesis 32 through 22 and 32. Notice number one is that Penuel is a place of testing. Penuel is a place of testing. And Jacob, verse 24 was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This was a place of serious confrontation and testing of Jacob. He had left his home behind, and he was about to face his brother that he had ripped off and conned years before, and he tried to sleep that night. And, uh, and then uh, if you look in your Bible, I think I have it on the screen, at verses 20 through 21, some verses right before that, we see kind of his mindset as he was thinking that night, and he was giving instructions to his servants in a way to kind of uh, manipulate the situation, and he told his servants, verse 20, and you shall say, this is instructions Jacob, Jacob is giving to them to go to Esau as these emissaries, This is what you'll say. Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. All right, meaning he's back there. For Jacob thought, this is this right there, that little phrase, for he thought, boy, that has gotten us and Jacob in a lot of trouble, isn't it? For our ways are not God's ways. For he thought, this is how he's going to, like, you know what? I've been there before, I've been down. I've had, you know, stuff has come against me. Defeat was knocking at the door. I got out of it then. I'm going to get out of it now. For he thought, quote, I may appease him. I may appease Esau with the present, offering him all these goods and wealth that goes ahead of me because he sent gifts. And afterwards, once I kind of appease him, kind of bring him down, and, and, and then I will see his face, and perhaps he will accept me. So the present, all these gifts and things that he was going to use to build up good grace with Esau, passed on ahead of him, verse 21, but he himself stayed that night in the camp. You know, there he is in the moment of crisis, and he does what is very natural and normal for him to do is he plots, and he schemes, and he tries to say, you know what, I can figure this out. I know how to work the situation. Oh, he prayed. He panicked. But unfortunately, he's still planning, right? And God's going to break that, going to break that planning. 
So we go down to verse 22, and it says, The same night, verse 22, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. That's the Jabbok River. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and he made his way back. Now let me just make a comment there, because it's always you know, uh, an itch, you know, something people question when it says, and it has in different Old Testament figures, about uh, polygamy or multiple wives. Re- remember this Bible study principle, okay? This is very helpful. I've said it before. Differentiate between what is prescriptive and descriptive. I'll explain it. When something is descriptive, the Bible is descriptive. It presents man and his faults, failures, sins, shortcomings. It describes it, warts, and all. It's descriptive. But that's different than being prescriptive. When you get a prescription from the doctor, it's, I want you to fill this and take this. It's prescribing something. The Bible never sanctions The Bible never prescribes multiple marriages, multiple wives, okay, or polygamy. So we see them acting, unfortunately, in conformity with what was acceptable in the culture, but God never condones that, okay? So remember the difference between things that are described, but is that something that is prescribed? Is that something God is is sanctioning and God is recommending? And so that is not the case. But the picture of of Jacob here is of a restless, frustrated man. And here's the deal that we all happen in our lives is you can't just sit there. You got to do something. Okay, I prayed, but I got to do something, (laughs) right? You you know, just just pray about it. Well, okay, but I got to do something about it. You know, that's not good enough. What do you mean just pray? Right? It's kind of like, well, Pastor, we've done everything we could do, so I guess we can pray. No, that's the first thing that you should do, right? I remember this story about a deacon board and the pastor going before them, and uh, it was over some crisis happening in the church, and the pastor got up to, you know, to talk to the deacons and the leaders of the church and said, well, I guess everything has happened. We better pray. And the deacon says, oh my gosh, has it come to that now? But that's the way we sometimes think about seeking the Lord. It's kind of the last option. He had to do something. And so he went back. Don't miss this. He sent his family and everybody over because he's expecting complete wipeout. I mean, Esau's got 400 ready, trained uh, soldiers of fortune, right, ready to come after him. Jacob is not going to escape this time. So he goes back over this river called the Jabbok River, And there's some interesting significance about that. And the Bible says in verse 24, then Jacob was alone. See, that's where God wants us. Without all the distractions. Sometimes God wants to do his most effective work. When we feel, and we are literally, spiritually, we just feel like we're all alone. Because that way we don't have all the noise and distractions around us and God can get our attention. Have you ever been there? 
feeling that you're at wit's end, troubles all around you, everything is gone. It's interesting, the Hebrew name Jabbok uh, has uh, several derivatives of its root meaning. Uh, It can mean flowing, but one of the names in the Hebrew of its root word means to empty itself. Now, isn't that interesting? Jacob on the Jabbok River... God is wanting Jacob to empty everything about Jacob for God to do his best work. He's on the Jabbok, an empty place. Remember, this is a place of testing. God needs to remove all the distractions that work around us and in us. He knows how to empty our lives. He knows how to get our attention. He leads us by the Jabbok where all we have is ourselves before the Lord. So, Penuel is a place of testing. But notice, secondly, that Penuel is a place of touching, touching. And again, let's look back at verse 24 and 25. And Jacob was left alone along the Jabbok. The emptying, the emptying place. And a man, now if you have a new King James or King James, uh, man, the M may be capitalized. Uh, because what they've done is they've interpreted for us. Okay, we'll talk about this in a minute. But a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he what? Touched his hip socket. God only needs a touch, doesn't he? Imagine, in fact, God doesn't even need to touch it. All the power of the Almighty, if you're wrestling with him, you're going to lose. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, you know, a lot of speculation as to who is this man? Who is he? Well, most would be in agreement. That this man, uh, Hosea 12.4 says he's an angel. And the Bible does give precedent when you talk about an angel. But I believe he's more than an angel. Because the, unless you're talking about the angel of the Lord. And we see precedent of this. Remember when Abraham entertained three individuals? And the Bible is clear about there being uh, angels. But one of them who spoke is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And so, just without trying to belabor all the reasoning behind it, is that most biblical uh, scholars and students affirm that this man, and I, I think that it should have a capitalized there, but that's just to help us identify it, but that this individual that's wrestling with Jacob is nothing other or less than the very... Son of God, what we call a pre-incarnate personage of Jesus Christ. That's called a, in the technical sense, that's called a theophany. And there's multiple places in the Old Testament where there are theophanies in the Old Testament. That's just Jesus, the Son of God, second person of the Godhead, appearance in situations in the Old Testament that are pre, when you say incarnation, that means where he bore human flesh. That's before that. 
So this man, more than likely, is the Son of God, Jesus Himself. Now back to verse 24, and this is something that I think most of us miss, and I think it's so critical to not miss this. Notice that when it says, and Jacob was left alone, the Bible says they wrestled, but the Bible says that a man wrestled with him. This isn't Jacob wrestling kind of a picture of prevailing prayer, I'm going to wrestle with God. No, this is God, the Son of God, wrestling with him. It's as if God himself is taking old Jacob, as we used to say in the south, he's taking him to the woodshed. And he's going to break this kid once and for all, but not break, but break him, not crush him. Do you understand the difference? God's breaking is good. And we'll look at that in Hebrews in just a minute. But Jacob... God is wrestling with Jacob, bringing him to the point of physical and spiritual submission. Arthur Pink, who is a Bible scholar and commentator and anything you, most anything uh, you get by Pink is worth reading. But in his commentary called Gleanings in in Genesis, I have the quote on the screen. I think he says something that helps us. He said, Jacob was not wrestling with this man to obtain a blessing. Instead, the man was wrestling with Jacob to gain some object from him. As to what this object is, uh, it was, uh, I, I remember I edited that, it was to reduce Jacob, what is this object? It was to reduce Jacob to a sense of his nothingness, to cause him to see what a poor, helpless, and worthless creature he was. It was to teach us, through him, the all-important lesson that in recognizing weakness lies our strength. Do you see that? Don't miss that. Don't miss That God is disciplining. God is breaking. God is wrestling with Jacob. Have you ever wrestled with the Lord? Who won? Who won that match? Huh? I'm not talking about Lex Luger or Andre the Giant. Some of those old names. Don't ask me about anybody new. Remember as a kid, my dad and I used to watch Saturday Night Wrestling. And I was convinced, oh, I would get into some fierce arguments that that was real. Because I saw real blood when Wahoo McDaniel hit Johnny Valentine. I saw blood come out of his mouth. And I'd get into some arguments and, no, that's real. And my grandfather was like, that's fake. Oh, granddaddy, no. I saw, I mean, I would go to, I'd get upset. But it was fake. Still is fake. Oh, they get, they get a little bruised up every once in a while, but this is not that kind of wrestling. God, God has an appointment for Jacob. Up to this point, Jacob has schemed, planned, 
manipulated, and now he's got him <coughs> with his back up against the wall, all alone, and an overwhelming force that he can't do anything about is coming against him. The Bible says in verse 24, 25 that the Lord was unable to overcome Jacob. It says in verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip pocket. Now we know that it wasn't that somehow Jacob was stronger, but I believe that the Lord allowed Jacob in this situation, the Lord allowed Jacob to fight, to wrestle, to bring him to a place where he was willing to see himself as he truly was. To see, for Jacob to see himself as he truly was. You see, there's a lot of Jacob in our lives. We're going to wrestle and resist God than just submitting and doing God's way from the get-go. Have you looked back on your life and think, many times you think, if I just listened and obeyed God back here, how I could have avoided all of this heartache and mess and turmoil. The Bible does speak, and I refer to it as this, this wrestling as a discipline that God is bringing. And the Bible does have something to say about that in Hebrews 12. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation portion of this, of this disciplining that God is bringing upon Jacob. Hebrews 12, and this is from the New Living Translation. For the Lord disciplines those He loves, and He punishes each one He accepts as His child. As you endure this divine discipline, as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as His, what? His own children. It says, who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by his father? And he goes on to elaborate that a father who loves his child is going to discipline that child, not for retribution, but for restoration. That's what parental discipline, and he's using that picture of how God treats us. Listen, if you want to get in a heap of trouble, discipline somebody else's kid. Hello? Just walk away. Just walk away. We spent many days at the pool with my grandkids, and you see how other children act. And there was a few times, you know, you want to, but just, Holy Spirit just said, Tim, walk away. Walk away. <laughs> Go get back in the kiddie pool. Walk away. All right? <laughs> but look down at verse 11. I think I skipped some verses. No discipline. No discipline is enjoyable while it is happening. It is painful. Did your parents ever say, this is going to, you know the deal, hurt me. But here's the word, but afterward. He's talking about how God disciplines us. How God is restoring us, correcting us, allowing us to be broken in order for God 
to restore and repair and mend the broken places. But afterwards, say afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living. Now here's the key for those who are trained by it. Here's my translation. Who, those who have learned what God wants you to learn. Because if you don't learn what you're supposed to learn. One of my biggest fears in elementary school was not making it to the next grade. Anybody else ever have that? You're in fourth grade and you had some absences and, you know, you had this, had that. And I remember when they would put the report cards for the last quarter before the break on the teacher's desk. I remember one time I would try to sneak up there because I wanted to see if I got, you know, to the next grade. I did. Uh, But you know what? God doesn't have any problem putting you back into third grade to learn what you need to learn in third grade. And if you're in third grade and you didn't learn what you needed to learn in kindergarten, guess what? He's got all the time in eternity. And God can wait you and me out. He's very patient. But I want you to notice the third, third principle. Penuel is a place of testing. Penuel is a place of touching touched us. But thirdly, Penuel is a place of transforming. It's a place of transforming. This one night in the life of Jacob, culmination of 20 some odd years of activity, God was reeling him in from his destructive, self-destructive, manipulative, crafty self. God was going to break him He wasn't going to crush him. He was going to break him. Why? Because God, in Philippians 1.6, the Lord says, the word of the Lord says, that the good work that he has begun in you, he will finish it. He will finish it. He has a vision for your life. He knows what the final product is to look like. And he's willing to. To mold, shape, break, do whatever is necessary to conform us into the image of Christ. Look at some of these final verses. Verses 25 through 27. Jacob was a broken man. He was a broken man. The Lord touched his hip socket. His socket, Jacob's hip was put out. He couldn't walk. And it says that the Bible says he, later he was, he was clinging on to him. I will not let you go, verse 26. You know what the Lord did? He touched one of the strongest parts of the body. And Jacob kept fighting. And as I said, God will wear you down. Jacob was a broken man. God does his best work with broken people. And that's what the Bible says in in, in the Psalms 51, God doesn't desire sacrifices and all these elaborate things that we think are religious, but he, wants, he, is, he is glorified with a broken and contrite what, heart and a life. The Bible says that, 
that blessed are the poor in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. One translation or literal says blessed are those who are bankrupt of self. As long as you're full of pride and self, God can't do His best work in your life. I don't use the message much. It's a paraphrase, but every once in a while it has a turn of phrase, and I think I have verse 26 from the message up there. Do I not? Verse 26? No? All right. It says this, just listen. Same verse, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the message. It's a paraphrase, very loose, not accurate, but it sometimes phrases something that's interesting. This is the same verse and how they paraphrase it. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. There it is on the screen. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and His rule. What did John the Baptist say? He must what? John said, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. So he was a broken man. But Jacob also in verse 28 through 30, the Bible says that he was a blessed man. In verse 28, the Lord says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. We could just stop and talk about that. That was his old name. That was his old identity. Manipulator, supplanter, schemer, con artist. But God gave him a new name, and that new name was Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. In verse 29, it says, Jacob says, please tell me your name. But this man says, why is it that you ask my name? And it was there that he, what, blessed him. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, or Penuel, some translations, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. You see, this man was a new man. This man was a changed man. This man, when he would cross over the Jabbok River again, the place of emptying, he was not the same man as when he arrived. God had done a work in his life. And God's purpose in breaking us and allowing us to walk through broken places, defeat places. Why? is so that He can make us again. You say, well, that's, I've never heard that before. Look at Jeremiah 18.4. Jeremiah 18.4. And the vessel that He made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so He, a picture of God, made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. That's good news. That means you are not who you were, but you are who God says you are. You're not what you did. You're not the shame and defeat. You are who God identifies you and what is broken. And people would say, well, there's nothing we can do. There's no hope. There's no deliverance. There's no mending. With God, all things are what? 
are possible. That's called grace. That's called the grace of God. He shapes us. He molds us. And that's a work that He continually does through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So not only was Jacob broken, blessed, but verse 31 and 32. Oh man, this is, this is good stuff. He was not only broken, blessed, but he was branded. Branded, not with an iron, fiery poker. But it says, the sun rose upon him, and as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Jacob carried, or not carried, but Jacob walked with a limp till the day he died. And instead of that limp being a mark of shame, the limp was a mark of God's grace. Because he met God that day, and he came away transformed. Bible would tell us later in Genesis 47 that Jacob talked to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of that day. Different Pharaoh than Moses, obviously. And he came in to Pharaoh's presence with a limp. How'd you get that limp, old man? What a great testimony. That the place that the world would say was your greatest defeat, your greatest shame, is a testimony of the goodness and the grace of God. The limp where God touched my life in a severe way, that God, whether through my sin, through the sin of others, whatever it is, that that badge of shame became a badge, became a branding of the matchless grace and mercy of God in my life. Every time old Jacob got up, moved his chair back, laid down, picked up his grandkids, played with uh, Joseph's kids. Jacob was reminded of that night on the Jabbok River where he wrestled with God, where he was renewed at Penuel, where his grandkids would say, Granddaddy, or in my case, Pap Pap, how did you get that limp? Let me tell you, let me tell you a great story. Of how God touched me. You see, we're always in this mindset of God's touching me is always something safe, right? But sometimes the best touch that God's made in your life and my life has been when He's knocked something out of socket. When he hit me at my greatest strength and he popped it out of joint that I couldn't use what I relied on for so long. Do you hear what I'm saying? Don't go to sleep on me. This is important. God in his mercy and grace will touch you and pop that thing out of socket and you'll walk with a limp, not to crush you, but to say, thank you, Jesus, that you loved me and kept me from destroying my life.
That's grace. That's grace. The place that could have been the greatest triumph for the devil to destroy you. And I tell you, isn't that what the cross is? Isn't that what the cross is? Became the spot where God met me. What man meant for evil, as Joseph, son of Jacob, would say in Genesis 50 20, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. God's mark of grace, God's mark of grace, hear me. God's mark of grace and the child of God is a limp, not a strut. Strut? Pride. Oh, Jacob walked with a strut. He had the family name. He had the wealth. He had just kind of, you know, I'll figure this thing out about Esau. I mean, he, he was full of himself. And we're full of ourselves. God is not glorified in the strut, but He's glorified in the limp where He touched us. Renewal at Penuel is a place of brokenness. And let me leave you with these simple, just takeaway observations. Nothing profound, but just little reminders. Number one, God meets us in our broken places. You know, one thing, I've been around church long enough, Behind the smiles and the nice clothes and all the things, there's a room full of here, room full here today of broken people in some area of their life. God can meet you in that broken place. Secondly, God not only meets us, but God mends us at our broken places. And this is what's interesting of how God works. Is thirdly, God ministers through us because of our broken places. You know, one of the biggest lies that the devil gives is for somebody to say because they've fallen, sinned, you fill in the blank. Divorce, multiple divorce, fill in the blank. And the enemy would say, well, you're no use of God. You just sit. You just sit and soak because you have nothing to offer. Oh, no, 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 no. I totally disagree with that. You have much to offer. Because you understand what God can do with the foolish things of the world. The things that are broken, the things that are defeated... You're a testimony of God's living and vibrant grace. You see, grace can be dangerous. And grace can be a little messy, can't it? But that's the way God works. Not because Jacob deserved anything, but why? Because God was committed to his covenant promise. That was all Jacob had, was that covenant. Because if he was left to himself, flashing his resume before God, God would just said, Esau, here's a shortcut. Take him out. 
God's covenant. Tony Evans in his study Bible makes this little note. And I'll close with this. Jacob's life would never be the same because he was now limping. This suggests that any man or woman God blesses will possess a limp of sorts. God will create something in that person's life that makes him or her despair of their own strength and lean on the Lord instead. Now listen to this. Brokenness. Brokenness is the key to blessing. Brokenness is the key to blessing. Kind of the opposite, the way things work. Jeremiah could affirm this. We sang it earlier. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 through 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You say, Pastor, you don't know you don't know what I did this week. God does. And he says, you got a new deposit of mercy at 12.01 last night or the early this morning. You exhaust the grace of God today, just wait for midnight. Because there's a new deposit. You understand what I'm saying? Why? Because God has made covenant with his son, Jesus Christ. Jacob, remember what he said? He said, I have met God and prevailed. Now listen to me. Here's the gospel truth as I conclude. You and I cannot meet God outside of Christ and prevail. Do you hear what I'm saying? You and I cannot contend and ever meet God apart from Christ and live to tell the tale. But you can meet God. You can meet and have peace with Him through Jesus Christ. And have your life changed forever. Because of all the good you've done, all the brownie points of catechism and child baptism and church attendance, no, 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 no. Because God the Father has made an everlasting covenant in His Son. And if you get in on that covenant, you get in on the blessings of God. There's one name given above all of heaven that men and women must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. Let's stand to our feet this morning.